Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, January 28th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, human trafficking presents new challenges during the pandemic as Mississippi's rate surpasses the national average by 175%. Then, members of the state's legal profession outline how the new medical marijuana program could affect employers and the workplace. Plus, in today's book club, what actions and words are protected by the First Amendment? Author Ian Rosenberg tells us in The Fight for Free Speech. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi has the second highest rate of human trafficking in the nation. It's according to the Human Trafficking Hotline. The state surpasses the national average by 175 percent. The practice has also risen in the state throughout the coronavirus pandemic, and officials are working to crack down on what they're calling a modern-day slave trade. Susie Harville is CEO of Advocates for Freedom, a nonprofit raising awareness of human trafficking in Mississippi. She tells our Kobe Vance the traffic through the state capital to other major cities makes the whole state vulnerable. Jackson, Mississippi, our state capital, is considered a pickup and a drop-off hub for traffickers. As they're coming out of Atlanta, coming down through Jackson and going to New Orleans, then they are um, they drop people off that are all used up and not producing, and they pick others up. And so our whole state is covered up. If they're coming out of Memphis and going towards Miami, it's the same thing. The pimps move the girls around all of the time. So, number one, they don't know where they are. They don't have a support group, and they won't go for help. And then, number two, so that they're always fresh in the area to get people's attention. And so this is one of the things that Mississippi has to combat are all of those things together. Can you talk about what kind of uh, human trafficking Mississippi faces? Is it, you know, when pe- people hear human trafficking, oftentimes they just think of, you know, uh, sex trafficking. Uh, but are there other forms that also go into that? Absolutely. There is labor trafficking. Labor trafficking globally is 79% of all trafficking. But people can be labor trafficked in the daytime and sex trafficked at night. We've had both men and women that that has occurred to, that they will work 16, 18 hours a day, and then um, many times in the evening they will turn tricks up, um, seven to, to ten tricks after that. And so uh, they are labor trafficked and sex trafficked. Um, what Mississippi is facing is not the 
international group, like maybe another state of, uh, we'll say, Florida and sometimes Texas, Arizona, New Mexico. Theirs will be more international at times. Ours is our own kids. Uh, you mentioned earlier that we've seen a rise in uh, in trafficking over the past year because of the pandemic, the, the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, what what changes have we seen, like to what extent, and uh, what do you think has been happening there? Well, what's been happening to cause this is everybody's been at home hunkering down on their devices. And where do the predators find um, them in chat rooms? How do they get to chat rooms? It's the little calculator. It's the it's a app about this or an app about that. There is a Nike app that's on our kids' phones, and we think they've just been looking at shoes and they want to go back and look at them some more, and what it really is is a chat room. And in, in these, uh, in McDonald's and, and in a calculator and in um, different things that look innocent, our parents need to look at all of their kids' phones. They need to open everything because half of the things that they have on their device may not be what it seems to be. What dangers are there whenever somebody uh, is seeking on those chat rooms? What are they looking for, and uh, what dangers does that pose for children? Number one, what they do is they are catfishing. Catfishing is one of those things when they pretend to be somebody that they aren't. Most of this is adults pretending to be a 12-year-old, and they're going to have a conversation with a 12-year-old. What they're looking for is she vulnerable? Is she willing to meet at some time outside the house? If they can get those two things conquered, they've got you. And uh, going back a little bit, you, you mentioned that uh, just uh, you know the numbers are. Do you know like how many uh, how many cases of human trafficking Mississippi had last year um, versus um, one hundred forty eight uh, is what one hundred forty eight. Um, what how does that compare to the years prior? Better than years prior, but I can tell you not as good as it should be. We are classifying things still as child abuse or a broken home or domestic violence, or we're classifying it as um, child rape or child assault. We're not calling it human trafficking. And why I know this is that we have many victims who are now 19 years old, but when they were living at home, it could have been their parents that were actually selling them down to the neighbor to make money, or they were having people in to make money on their kids because they didn't really care. They got to meet their drug needs or whatever it was, and and it could be a family member. Familiar girl, sex is one of those things that happen inside the home. Then if a kid runs away, they have survival sex just because that's something that makes a little bit of money so they can at least eat and and maybe have a place to sleep. What conversations do parents have with their children uh, to address, you know, uh, dealing with online chat rooms and dealing with um, people that are that they might not know or people they might trust that would be uh, placing them in situations that are at this risk of human trafficking? Be firm about the, the technology. These devices are good, but that's 
they're bad also. And that's what's luring our kids. Also, I would tell parents, train your children, boys and girls. The boys are the hot thing right now. But train your kids to go in numbers and to stay safe and to stay in numbers. Never go off by yourself because that's that's where you can get in the most danger quickly. When you go to uh, a party and you have something to drink, never leave that drink. If you do, pour it out. Get rid of it. If you don't want to pour it out, put a napkin over it, take it to the bathroom with you, come back and enjoy the rest of it. But if you go to a dance floor or you turn your back on your drink, you need to throw it out. I would tell parents, sit down, talk with your kids, tell them the dangers of trafficking. Treat them like an adult because you'll give them a car at 16, but you won't talk to them about human trafficking. That is an injustice because your kids can get so easily lured. They're just running down to the store to pick up a loaf of bread, and they meet somebody there, and you never see your kid again. Trafficking hurts entire families. Susie Harville is CEO of Advocates for Freedom. Coming up, members of the state's legal profession outline how the new medical marijuana program could affect employers and the workplace. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Right now, we need connection more than ever. StoryCorps is inviting you to record a conversation with a loved one remotely and archive it at the Library of Congress. Information about this limited virtual experience can be found at StoryCorps.org. StoryCorps is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. Mississippi Edition, I'm Karen Brown. Members of Mississippians' legal profession are examining how the state's medical marijuana program will impact the workplace. Medical marijuana was made legal through an adopted constitutional amendment last fall, but there's no existing statute to guide legal practices for employers and employees regarding the substance. The amendment assigns regulatory control to the Department of Health and stipulates rules and regulations be developed and made public by July 1st. Ashley Kennedy and Scott Address are attorneys with Balt and Bingham in Jackson. The firm is conducting a webinar today for focused on medical marijuana in the workplace. Workplace. They share more about the program, developing regulation and workplace considerations with our Michael Guidry. There have been a number of bills introduced um, in regard to the medical marijuana program, ranging from uh, matters such as authorizing state chartered banks do business with medical marijuana permittees, um, also, also authorizing uh, specifically the Department of Health to administer the program, um, addressing such things as interagency charges between the Department of Health and other state agencies that health may decide to get involved, um, and also um, introducing such things called the uh, Mississippi Medical Marijuana Act, which um, it, I, I briefly looked at and in, in some respects conflict directly with um, what the citizens of Mississippi passed when they voted for initiative number 65. 
So there's still a lot to be ironed out with this, and um, the Department of Health will have to have its rules and regulations outlined and available by July 1st, like you said. There's a webinar that, Ashley, you're, you're part of that looks at how this new constitutional amendment and, and the presence of medical marijuana will impact uh, Mississippi's workforce. Uh, what are some of the key points you, you plan on bringing up as we kind of examine and navigate what workplace rules are going to look like with medical marijuana available? Today's webinar will cover um, four major topics, um, the first of which is the background of marijuana in Mississippi and the current um, state pursuant to the constitutional amendment. Um, We will also cover exactly who um, may be prescribed medical marijuana and for what. We will discuss drug testing limitations and how to determine if your employees are impaired. We will discuss the continuing obligations that an employer has to provide a workplace free of recognized hazards. Of course, drug use and abuse is one of those. And then we'll end with dealing with expanded impairment and addiction situations and how employers can address those and alternatives um, if they would like to permit their employees to use medical marijuana. This new amendment provides for medical marijuana. It is something that has not been introduced into the workplace. You mentioned some of the things that will be covered in the seminar. What are some of the the basics, the the 101s that employers need to consider uh, when it comes to the availability of medical marijuana for their employees and how that intersection occurs with the workforce and the workplace? So most employers have in place drug and alcohol policies as well as drug testing policies. Um, under the constitutional amendment, the employer still has the um, right to prohibit their employees from using medical marijuana um, either before that they come to work, after, etc. cetera. Um, so medical marijuana under those policies will still be treated as plain marijuana, which is on the uh, Schedule 1. So those employers that would like to do so can just revise their policies to make it clear that medical marijuana is not an exception. Other employers may want to take a softer stance, um, you know, depending on the nature of their business and their concerns, and they would treat medical marijuana as any other prescription which an employee may have, but that using that drug would cause them to be impaired, and then they would evaluate the, um, the potential for impairment and whether the employee may use marijuana at work or limit it to um, times when they are not on duty. So there are several options um, for employers to consider going forward. One of the things you mentioned was, was drug testing. What are the parameters for, for testing this, uh, and how do you negotiate HIPAA if someone does not want to disclose the fact that they are, are certified under this program to, to take medical marijuana? Well, first of all, um, the constitutional amendment requires those who have been prescribed medical marijuana to have um, an identification card that the Department of Health will issue to them. So if an employee is um, about to be drug tested, they can provide that card to the um, 
to the medical review officer who will review the drug test. That is completely confidential. However, I would anticipate that most employers will want to know if their workers are under the influence at times of medical marijuana so that they can structure schedules and um, duties accordingly. That being said, um, if you treat it as a, any other prescription drug under your policy, then they would have the duty to provide the prescription or here the identification card to substantiate their um, need for the drug. Scott, I, I want to circle back to you. You mentioned that the health department is given the sole responsibility for the rules and regulations. Uh, is there a blueprint or is it going to kind of be just a, a dump on July 1st with essentially a, a little over a month to, to square everything out and understand what these processes are going to look like? There's not a blueprint contained in the initiative per se, but there are clues. Any sort of industry like medical marijuana that's going to be highly regulated um, will be administered in many ways like our other highly regulated industries. Our initiative was similar in a lot of ways to that in Oklahoma, um, as well as in Florida. And um, I would assume that the individuals at the Department of Health uh, in their legal department and, and the executives there that are charged with the responsibility of promulgating these rules and regulations are using those um, not necessarily as a go-by, but to get a good idea of best practices in the industry and engaging in conversations with regulators in those states to determine best practices. I would just add that um, we have now legalized the use of marijuana, at least for medical purposes in Mississippi. However, it does remain illegal to grow, sell, use marijuana pursuant to federal law. We could speculate that those laws may change now that there's a new administration uh, to be more lenient on a federal basis. But until that happens, um, we have to be very conservative and very careful um, to, what, to ensure that whatever we do here in Mississippi doesn't cause the federal government to want to put an end to it. Ashley Kennedy and Scott Andrus with Balch and Bingham, uh, thank you and um, good luck today with the webinar. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Michael. The webinar is today at noon and is available through Balch and Bingham's website. Coming up in our book club, what actions and words are protected by the First Amendment? Author Ian Rosenberg tells us in The Fight for Free Speech. This is Morning Edition, Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Thanks. 
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. In this tumultuous time in our country, dialogue is ramped up as our actions of protest and violence. But what's legal and what's not? In his book, The Fight for Free Speech, 10 Cases That Define Our First Amendment Freedoms, Ian Rosenberg distills the spectrum of free speech law down to 10 critical issues. Our conversation begins with what rights are protected under the First Amendment. There's the right not to speak. There's a right to criticize public figures. There's a right to non-disruptive protest in school. There's a right to offend. There's a right to publish without being stopped. There's a right to parody. And there's a right to espouse thoughts that we hate. The first thing you said was freedom to not speak. Give us an example of that. So when we're talking about, for example, Colin Kaepernick refusing to speak, uh, refusing to sing or stand for the national anthem, we're really talking about a case that's called the Barnett case, in which two school children during World War II refused to pledge allegiance to the flag. And the court ultimately found that there is a right to remain silent, that there is no way that the government should be constitutionally allowed to compel people to speak a message that they don't agree with. In any of the 10 cases, are there any that people think they understand it, but they don't at all? I think the most common misconception about free speech is that free speech does not include hate speech. And for good and ill, that is just untrue. Hate speech, whether it comes from the neo-Nazis in Charlottesville or from hateful people protesting military funerals, there is a constitutional right to protect the speech that we disagree with and even the speech that we hate. And I think that we need to understand that as a baseline before we take the more complicated step of deciding whether that is an element of First Amendment protection that we want to continue. When does hate speech cross a line into illegality? For instance, so, you can say you hate the president of the United States, but you can't say, I'd like to kill the president of the United States. Well, you, you might even be able to say that I'd like to kill the president of the United States. Really? Uh, in, yeah. In chapter one of my book, I talk about how there is a right to advocate for illegal action. And we start with talking about Madonna saying at the first women's march that she thought about blowing up the White House. She was so angry. And we go back to the case that really began American modern free speech law, which is called Abrams, which involved immigrant anarchists who were against World War I incursions into the Soviet Union and threw leaflets out from the rooftops of the Lower East Side, attacking the draft and attacking the war. And they were put in jail. But the Supreme Court case that actually affirmed their imprisonment created our modern notion of free speech, led to the test that divides protected speech from unprotected speech, which is called Brandenburg. And the, the test boiled down to its essence is that speech can advocate illegal action up until the point that is directed to and likely to cause imminent physical harm. Senator Josh Hawley, when his publisher canceled publishing his book, his reaction was, my First Amendment rights have been infringed upon. Can you explain why that is not the case? Absolutely. And and you're right. This is a clear cut answer. And Josh Hawley, who clerked for Chief Justice Roberts, absolutely knows better. And it's just another example of him trying to mislead the American public. Freedom of speech does not mean freedom of reach. 
There is no First Amendment right to have your book published by any particular platform. So the idea that Simon & Schuster, which is a private actor, has any First Amendment obligations to Josh Hawley at all is absolutely false. We often think that your right to free speech means that you have a right to be heard anywhere you want to be. But that is not the case. The right to free speech, as I say, can encompass many rights, but ultimately it is about preventing the government from interfering with your free speech rights, not private companies or private individuals. What do you think is the biggest threat to freedoms that are afforded by the First Amendment? Unfortunately, I I think that the clear threat to the First Amendment and our democracy is the denigration and the demonization of the American media. When President Trump calls the media the enemy of the people, that's part of a calculated approach to try and undermine our current democracy. And as President Biden had said, our, our democracy is really fragile. We need to know about the rights of the press. We need to know how the press supports our democracy. And I think that people have many misconceptions fueled by President Trump and others that the media somehow is allowed to run rampant and just lie with impunity. And that is absolutely false. That is not the libel test, and that is not American constitutional law. I think we need to protect the press. And to do that, we need to begin with a better understanding of the rights and limits of the press as part of First Amendment law. Ian Rosenberg is the author of The Fight for Free Speech, 10 Cases That Define Our First Amendment Freedoms. Thank you so much for being with us, Ian. It was my pleasure. Thank you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.